This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Today we have a guest. It's our first guest, and he has had TEDx talks a number of times throughout the talk here. We reference his TED talk. It's not a TED talk. It's a TEDx talk for those who want to nitpick. He is the executive director of the Reconomics Institute, and he is also an author, among other things. He's got a whole interesting background that we don't actually touch on too much, but his most recent book is called Reconomics, The Path to Resilient Prosperity, out in 2020. If you like this, let us know, and we would be happy to do more of them. Today, uh, welcome Storm Cunningham. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We're going to be talking about urban revitalization, a strategic process. Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you having me on the show, Phil. Great. Uh, So what can you tell us about urban revitalization? Oh, man. It's a big, big question. I know we're starting off very broad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, probably the uh, simplest way to approach that would be just to focus in on the aspect of urban revitalization that I deal with. Uh, There are so many other aspects of it, you know, the design aspects that architects and engineers would deal with and economic uh, and social and environmental. And I deal with all of those different things. But the aspect I most commonly work with is the one that's the greatest source of failure in urban revitalization initiatives worldwide. You can screw up just about any aspect of it, you know, bad designs, you know, you know, environmental uh, undermining, unequitable or inequitable uh, economic uh, revitalization. I mean, there's so many ways to do it wrong. But I've been doing this full time now for over 20 years. And the whole time I've been looking for commonalities. You know, I've been speaking at uh, uh, summits and conferences and conventions and planning meetings uh, all over the world now. And for every talk I gave, I normally heard at least a dozen. So I've probably heard more stories of revitalization, success and failure than anybody else on the planet. And the thing that jumped out is that Places tend to be really good at doing projects, you know, converting a building, you know, from a hotel to apartments or cleaning up a brownfield and uh, putting something more productive on it and doing infrastructure renewal or restoring their watershed. All kinds of revitalizing projects that contribute to the revitalization of the area where they fall down is on the overall program, the overall initiative that's meant to produce either revitalization or resilience, or preferably both, since you want your revitalization to last, so you want it to be resilient. And it's that overall initiative that tends not to have any kind of process. I mean, everybody who produces anything knows you need to have a process. doesn't matter whether you're producing clothing or peanut butter or tax revenues or automobiles. you got to have a process. And the only people who don't seem to understand that are the people who are running revitalization and resilience initiatives. So what you see is cities doing a whole lot of wonderful projects, but still not getting that turnaround in their trajectory. You know, they might be going downhill or they might be stagnant and all these wonderful projects don't change it. 
because they don't actually have a process for producing the end result that they're trying to achieve, which is revitalization. Right. So what I'm hearing is you're saying that it sounds more like a lot of Band-Aid initiatives where it's a political kind of move, right? Like they want to have something that looks impressive, something big, and look, we did this thing, but the overall trend still seems to be towards... I think what you call deconomics or deconstructive economics, was that the term? Yeah. I'm referring to your talk on uh, the TED Talk. Sorry, this is pretty old, <laughs> but uh, we'll link to that as well. But uh, you made a distinction in that talk a lot of time about sustainable and restorative versus number of dichotomies, like deconstructive economics versus reconstructive economics, de-wealth and re-wealth. Right. My whole focus for ever since I started writing the first book, The Restoration Economy, which I started writing in 1996, didn't come out till 2002, it's been on this whole de-re transition that you're referring to. You know, so you could say it's uh, development versus redevelopment. It's devitalization versus revitalization, uh, demolition versus uh, reconstruction, uh, all of these de-re aspects. And what's happening is that because a lot of this revitalization activity is fairly new, there really isn't much rigor to it. People basically relying on hope and magic. They just do a, a lot of good projects and hope that somehow revitalization magically appears. And it's really strange that they're putting the future of their community or the region in the hands of hope and magic when they've got so many professionals involved. But the trouble is, up till now, there's been no real revitalization profession. So they've defaulted to, you know, if they hire somebody to be in charge of revitalization, they might bring in a person with an economic development background, in which case their revitalization is based on stealing employers from other communities, uh, usually by giving away big tax breaks, which undermines the city's economy long run, or they'll hire an architect. So their revitalization becomes totally focused on design. And good design is important, but that's not the same as running a revitalization process. You know, or they hire engineers and their revitalization becomes all about infrastructure renewal, or they hire planners and they spend 20 years writing plans and never actually doing anything. They get stuck in what I refer to as perpetual planning syndrome. Right. You make a distinction between strategies and tactics, and I know this is kind of a military thing, and wondering if maybe some of that comes from your background in the military. And the community is often doing tactics like planting some trees or, or putting some banners out on Main Street or whatever. And so strategy is the way you're pointing to as actually long-term sustainable revitalization. How would you define strategy in, in your approach? Yeah, it's a good question because it's one of those words that everybody uses, but very few people really understand what it is. Oftentimes, people use tactics and strategy synonymously, or we'll use plan and strategy synonymously. You know, I ask people, so what's your strategy for revitalizing your downtown? And they'll pull a 200-page plan off the book and say, here you go. And I say, no, that's a plan. What's your strategy? <laughs> it's hard to understand strategy uh, unless you understand the whole context. So you start, ideally, a revitalization program should, initiative should start with an ongoing program, you know, because revitalization doesn't come from start, stop, start, start, uh, stop individual projects. You have to build momentum and build confidence in the future of the place. So that requires an ongoing program. And the very first thing that program should do is create a shared vision of what you're trying to achieve, what kind of community you want in 10 or 20 years. And then the strategy comes in because the sole focus of the strategy, the only reason a strategy exists is to achieve success. That's what a strategy is all about. It's a technique that will help you overcome whatever the primary obstacles are to achieving your vision. 
And that strategy can often be said in just a few sentences. In fact, some of the best strategies are just three words. The difference between a strategy and a plan is, if you want to put it in real terms, what happens is that plans become the end result. People become so focused on creating a plan, they think they've succeeded when they've written the plan. And if you remember uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower's quote, he says, uh, planning is essential, but plans are useless. The plans actually become one of the major blockages to achieving revitalization because everybody thinks that because they now have a plan, that things are going to happen and nothing happens. The plan just goes on a shelf. 99% probably of all plans are never implemented. It's kind of a scam industry in a lot of ways because uh, mayors want easy, risk-free uh, feathers to stick in their cap. So they'll announce to the public, you know, we've commissioned a plan and there's no risk in that. All they have to do is write a check. And then a year later, the plan arrives, they do another press conference. We've got a plan and another feather in their cap and still no risk. Well, the risk comes in if they try to implement it. Now they might fail. So the plan goes on the shelf and five years later, there's a press conference. We're going to update our plan. So the strategy, sometimes the strategy is how to overcome the planning department in order to revitalize a place, how to get the agencies that are actually standing in the way of revitalization to get out of the way. And those are usually the planning department or the economic development agency. On this topic, uh, I'm going to play a slightly devil's advocate because I know that people are going to be curious about this and I'm actually curious myself. I've seen you talk about revitalizing communities and how it's good for them. And of course, we all want fresh air and clean water and a nice environment. But I, I know a lot of people are going to be hesitant with these kind of projects because they're wondering how would the investment be recouped for the municipality? Like how, like maybe that's one of the reasons why they're just focusing on plans because then it doesn't cost them very much and there's no real risk there, as you said. So what, what ways do these communities tend to earn money back through these endeavors? Well, the fact is that if a community is not revitalizing, it's devitalizing. There's really no such thing as healthy stasis. So if they decide they don't want to take any risks by not investing in their community, their devitalization is guaranteed. So that's one of the paybacks is that you actually have a better future. You can revitalize in you know, just myriad, myriad ways. They don't all have to be capital intensive. You don't have to take big risks on aquariums and stadiums and convention centers and all these other what are often turn out to be white elephant uh, failures, you know, by, run by mayors and their uh, redevelopment buddies who are just looking to extract as much revenue from the uh, taxpayers as possible and subsidize their businesses. Those are the risky ones. The real revitalization initiatives are the ones like I described in uh, the book, Reconomics, that came out last year, which have this complete strategic renewal process. And the very first part of that process, where you create the ongoing program and you create the shared vision, that's when you engage all the local stakeholders and you come up with a revitalization strategy that makes sense for the level of risk they want to take and the level of change, the pace of the change, and who is going to benefit from it. So their future is in their hands. But not doing anything, not making any investments is just as risky as investing. On the topic of economics, you know, in the climate discussion more broadly, I guess more at a national level, there's always this this uh, juxtaposition of economics on one hand and in uh, the climate on the other hand. If you give to one, you're taking from the other. And so there's this zero-sum game in, in this kind of broader discourse. 
What are your thoughts on that? Oh, that's just propaganda from the fossil fuel industries. They've, they've been subsidizing all kinds of academic research and creating all kinds of phony nonprofit research institutions for 30 years now. And their sole purpose of uh, all this phony scientific research is to create confusion of that kind. It's illegitimate. Yeah, there's. If you look at the real research, uh, there is no such dichotomy. No, I, I love your approach because it does integrate uh, the economics with revitalization as as one and the same. And you're not looking at it as like just volunteering to do something nice for your community. It's actually creating an industry around this, and, and there is an industry that I guess a lot of people don't know about. Yeah, it, it's huge. Uh, it's the trouble is that it's not really organized. Yeah, people don't treat revitalization as a discipline. So they just focus on all the individual parts. So you've got these huge AEC companies, you know, architect, engineering, construction companies doing huge projects, multi-billion dollar projects, you know, redeveloping cities. You've got huge ecological restoration projects like the $12 billion Everglades restoration project. You've got all of this restoration of fisheries and watersheds and renewal of infrastructure and restoration and reuse of historic buildings and catastrophe recovery and reconstruction. It's just everywhere you look. But the revitalization aspect, the revitalization is kind of a, it is in a way kind of magical. Uh, It is something that emerges from a complex adaptive system, which is what a city is. And it's because of that emergent nature of it that it can't be engineered. You can't say on September 14th, 2023, revitalization is going to happen like you can with a a project where you say on that date, uh, a dam is going to be completed or a ribbon cutting on a building is going to be done. And it's that emergent complex nature of it. And the, the fact that it's not controllable and that there are always going to be surprises, which is one of the defining characteristics of any complex living system that terrifies engineers, terrifies planners, and terrifies leaders. The example of Chattanooga, Tennessee is one that really stands out uh, as kind of highlighting this revitalization and economic development coexisting. Would you mind sharing a little bit more on that particular example as a case study for this? Yeah, Chattanooga is probably my favorite story in the United States for two reasons. One is because it was such a spectacular revitalization coming from such an incredibly low point and achieving such a high point in a relatively short period of time. So the simple dynamics of it make it a a star. But the other aspect is that they probably the first community, at least in the United States, to create what I consider a complete strategic renewal process. It had all the elements. It had the ongoing program. It had the vision, the strategy. It had the policy work, the partnerships, and the projects. And those are the six elements that I consider the minimum viable process. And they were the first ones to do it all. And that is why they went from a point in the late uh, 70s where Walter Cronkite, if any of you guys are old enough to remember who he was, he got on national TV and uh, announced that, according to the EPA, that Chattanooga was the uh, filthiest city in the United States. Uh, Folks, they had so much coal-fired industry there, and because they were in kind of a valley, it concentrated, and people literally had to drive with their headlights on in the middle of the day. Wow. That was only one of many problems. They were hemorrhaging like 5,000 jobs a year at that point. It's not that big a city. And uh, they had tremendous crime problems, racial problems. I mean, this is a city that was just a total basket case. In the process of 
cleaning up their air after Walter Cronkite shamed them nationally, they decided, okay, well, let's take care of the air problem. And they did. They actually cleaned up their air and became the first recipient of the EPA's Clean Air Award. And that process of working together to clean up their air showed them that they could work together. And they decided, well, we've got this momentum now. We've got this cohesion, social cohesion. Let's keep on going. Uh, Let's revitalize our waterfront. That snowballed. They had a local foundation that was funding the creation of their ongoing program and their visioning process. And uh, 20 years later, people were flying in from all over the world to see the Chattanooga miracle. Uh, The first time I went there, I was walking around downtown. I came across a group of very well-dressed Vietnamese folks and uh, asked them what they were doing in Chattanooga. And it turned out they were all government ministers from Vietnam who were coming to see this miracle they'd been hearing about. So I was actually curious, after talking about Chattanooga, have you heard anything about uh, Sudbury, Ontario? We had a huge coal mining, I think, strip mining issue there that was also revitalized. I was wondering if that popped up on your radar. I've never actually been to Sudbury, but uh, I've been kind of loosely following the story. In fact, I think I mentioned it in one of my books that uh, I don't know. I haven't been following it lately. The story I mentioned in my book was the tailings from the mining activity had become such a visually arresting site that had become a tourist attraction. And when folks came in, decided they want to start uh, reforesting the area, restoring the watershed, they actually had local people pulling out the trees because they didn't want to ruin the tourist industry that was seeing all this devastation as an attraction. Oh, wow. That's absurd. I didn't know that. I don't know why people would want to come and see a wasteland, but oh man, but apparently it's it's gotten a lot better as I guess you probably hopefully mentioned in the book. That's uh, surprising. I wouldn't think there would be an economic interest in keeping something desolate. Well, it's actually not that rare. If you go to uh, Butte, Montana, the biggest tourist attraction in town is a copper mining pit. I mean, they've got a very lovely downtown with a lot of historic buildings, but the reason probably 70-80% of the tourists come is to look at the uh, what I think might be the world's largest hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man-made hole, I presume. <laughs> and and the, the hole is rather notorious because the water at the bottom of it is so toxic that when migrating geese and ducks come through and they land on it, they're usually dead the next morning. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. What? Wow. Yeah, that's... Uh, oh. Toxic tourism. I never knew it was a thing. It's definitely a place that you want to go and see, of course. Why? I was actually curious. I I missed a little bit in the middle there, but um, I was wondering if you have any opinions about the Green New Deal and everything coming along the lines with that. It's got a lot of the right things in it. There's always going to be political grandstanding in any of these things. So I would say, yes, it's got a lot of really good uh, thoughts And uh, if it were fully funded and implemented, it would do a lot of really good things, whether it's politically viable or not, and whether the people who put it together ever thought it would be politically viable. You know, there could be a grandstanding aspect to it there. But uh, should it pass? Should it be fully funded? Absolutely. And on that topic, because that's a a national issue, from my understanding, we watched the Canadian election debates very recently, and and, uh, the climate was one of the main sections of it. And all we heard was just visions and they were very broad visions not very specific and they were all pretty much saying similar things and so on the national level there's a tendency to focus on visions whereas on the municipal level there's a tendency to focus on planning or tactics and so they're kind of at opposite extremes there what are your thoughts on that 
on the national discourse? Well, actually, it's it, there's a lot of dependence on visions at the uh, community level too. The the plans that are go onto the shelf and ignored are mostly a product of the city's agencies. Uh, you know, they often are mandated. You know, they're they're fund budgeted for ahead of time and the community is legally required to have a plan update every five years or 10 years or whatever. So that's kind of an institutional thing. But, you know, many communities, especially those with uh, large minority populations uh, or people, uh, low-income neighborhoods that are getting organized and starting to have some political power, their favorite way of, uh, for the local leaders, the favorite way of getting these people off their back is to do visioning sessions. So I've been to cities that had literally dozens of visions. You know, they're just doing visions right and left. And in many cases, it was just a, a feel-good exercise. Uh, they sometimes, ha- these visioning sessions often have a very salutary effect on the neighborhood in terms of bringing people together and getting to talk about the future they want. And uh, and that's wonderful. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the visioning sessions themselves. The trouble is they're often being used, like I said, just to get them off the political leaders' back. So there's no follow-through. So on the same shelves that you'll find all those comprehensive plans and revitalization plans and strategic plans, uh, you'll also find the results of all these visioning sessions just going up there and being ignored because there's no strategy or process for implementing the vision. And the same thing uh, with the whole design charrette uh, trend uh, or fad, really, that was going on in the earlier part of this century, usually around late 90s to about 2010, 2015 or so before they started dying out. Yeah, you probably have different terminology for them up there in Canada. There's no real standard uh, terminology for them down here in the States. You know, they're often just called visioning sessions, which is dis- different from design charrettes. Design charrettes are usually run by architects, and, you know, they'll bring a bunch of people together for a, kind of a workshop where they'll world cafe type things where people break out into sessions and they'll come up with their ideas for the future of their neighborhood and then people vote on the favorite ideas and they'll stick colored dots on maps and they'll have little building kind of like lego things where they'll move buildings around on a map of the city or the neighborhood and say well what if we put this here and that there it's all good stuff but 99% of the time, it's not followed through. No follow through. Yeah, it seems like a lot of uh, feel good kind of make people (laughs) just feel like they're doing something, but not it's kind of Machiavellian in in a way where it's like, here, you can you can definitely help. Here are these things you can do. What are we what should we do? All right, great. That goes right in the bin. Now let's move on to other things. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. It reminds me of vision boards in personal development. Uh, it's a concept that uh, you know people cut out things from magazines and put it onto a board, and it's like a feel-good exercise in terms of like someday I'll be this and I'll have this body and this this car, and, and it really reminds me of that as a parallel. Yeah, visions are absolutely essential, but they're absolutely useless if that's all they are as a vision. In terms of the uh, the vision boarding for individuals, like I'm just trying to draw a parallel between that and communities. How do you do you know any research, Steve, on how vision boards actually work out? Do they actually help people much? I haven't seen anything good about it. I'm actually curious to delve into that research more, but I haven't seen anything that's particularly useful about it. But yeah, there is an element of it being essential to know where you're going. And so instead of vision boards, I would say something in personal development like values is kind of more of of what we would generally talk about. But as you said, urban revitalization is like magic and strategy seems to be one of the big keys to unlocking that magic. And it's often the most neglected 
piece of this picture. And so I'm more curious about what, what is an example of a very specific strategy or maybe even Chattanooga's strategy? So once you have your vision uh, and you've got a handle on what your assets are, what you have to work with, what I call renewable assets, which is the same thing a lot of communities call problems, uh, you know, derelict buildings, contaminated sites, you know, things like that. The stuff that a lot of communities think of as being what's in the way of the revitalization, these are actually the renewable assets, which are the ingredients of the revitalization. So uh, part of it is getting a handle on you know, kind of like a SWOT analysis, figuring out where you are, you know, what the threats are, you know, what you have to work with, where the opportunities are. The strategy comes in in terms of looking at where you want to go and what's standing in your way and figuring out how you're going to get there. And the reason I said there are some strategies that are only three words is because probably the single most effective revitalization strategy on the planet is just three words. I call it the three re strategy. And those three words are repurpose, renew, reconnect. And the reason they're so universally it's so universally effective is because most communities, no matter what the differences are in their social systems, their value systems, their politics, uh, their economies, uh, their cultures, most communities, if they've been around for more than a half a century, have the same problems. They've got contaminated lands, they've got derelict infrastructure, they've got derelict buildings, they've got stuff that either needs to be removed or renovated or redesigned or restored in some way. They've got depleted farmlands, depleted fisheries, depleted watersheds. So that you find the same problems everywhere, which means that to revitalize, they need to, in many cases, most cases, they need to find a new purpose for these derelict assets. And, uh, you know, like if they've got a waterfront that has been traditionally industrial, as many of them were, you're going to find all kinds of contamination and uh, derelict buildings there. And to figure out how to revitalize the waterfront, the first purpose has to be, well, how can we repurpose those buildings? How can we repurpose that contaminated land? You have to find the new purpose for it before you can raise the money that you need to renew it. And, you know, so that's why repurposing is the first thing. Uh, it's just kind of like a with a person. If you want to revitalize your life, you know, if somebody's discovered that their life is going down the crapper, you know, they probably need to find out what their purpose for living is. And it's that much different from cities and, and properties. So you repurpose it. Then with that new purpose, you raise the money you need to renew it. This is kind of a standard thing. You go to any city and you'll find buildings and properties that have a new purpose and have been restored, renewed, renovated. The part that so many communities forget about is that last one, reconnect. Uh, Those waterfronts often got isolated because, you know, these industrial waterfronts were dirty and dangerous and a place that nobody wanted to go to. So they often ended up fairly isolated, had fences around them. And the same thing with old industrial properties. You know, the, the industry that was there is usually security conscious or an old military base that's being redeveloped. They usually had very few points of access for security purposes. So in all of these cases, in order to really bring that property fully back to life, you need to create viable new connections for it. And it's not just in urban situations. Uh, It's uh, in ecological restoration too. Many times people will say, okay, here's an old farm. They exhausted their their soil. The farmer went bankrupt. We're going to ecologically restore it now and return it to nature. But then they forget 
that it's surrounded by other farms. And there might be another protected area just a quarter of a mile away, but there are active farms or other derelict farms in between them. And in order to fully revitalize both of these protected areas, the traditional, the older protected area and the newly restored protected area, they need to connect them. So, for instance, wildlife often needs to migrate seasonally from the lowlands along the riparian areas to the mountaintops. So you could have a protected area or restored area on the mountaintop and a restored area along the river or the creek. But if you've got uh, old farmland that hasn't been restored in between them, neither one of those ecosystems is going to come back to life. So you need to connect them. And sometimes just a tiny little restoration project will provide that connection between ecosystems. And both those ecosystems uh, come back to life, sometimes without touching either one of the big ecosystems, simply by restoring a tiny piece of land that connects them. Right. So it kind of uh, radiates health between them to some degree if they're close enough. Well, it allows for flows. Flows are the key. If you look through all these community revitalization uh, programs that are really, really successful, you'll see that in addition to the buildings and the brownfields and all that, they focused on their infrastructure to maximize flows because that's all infrastructure is. It's stuff that allows for flows, you know, flows of traffic, flows of human beings, flows of information, flows of water, flows of waste. So on the topic of farming, I actually had a, a couple of questions for you on that because I think it's kind of this area that's a little bit ironic when people want to think about getting back to nature and they picture farms, which are massively monocropped and completely the opposite of uh, natural land. I was just wondering if you have any ideas about the future of farming, because it seems like from what I gather, it seems like a lot of the topsoil is kind of being depleted, as you just kind of touched on. And I was wondering if anybody's moving towards like hybrid models. Like I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, Three Sisters um, Gardens. Have you heard of that? No, not familiar with that. So Three Sisters Gardens is um, squash. Traditionally, I think it's an indigenous thing. It's squash, corn, and peas. Yeah, my wife is from Mexico. We, we spend uh, a month or two in Mexico every year. So I'm, I'm very familiar with the, uh, the native Mexican uh, type of agriculture. So now I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so I was wondering if we were moving into some sort of larger scale, more sustainable kind of hybrid model where you can get more food per square foot or if we're using maybe like mushrooms. I'm curious if, we're, if you know anything about these kind of ventures. Yeah, sure. Uh, the big challenge we have now is that because we haven't been using sustainable methods like that uh, corn, bean, and squash uh, method that's kept uh, lands, farmlands alive in Mexico for centuries, actually for millennia since it was invented by the indigenous folks there, because we haven't been using that for the past few centuries, the big challenge now is actually restoring farmlands. As with virtually other, every other aspect of the environment, sustainability is not enough. In fact, it hasn't been enough for quite a while now. The only way we can possibly have a healthier, wealthier, more vibrant future is by restoring our natural resources, and that includes our farmlands. So forget about sustainable agriculture. Forget about sustainable anything. It's irrelevant now. Anybody who thinks that all we need to do is sustain the way things are right now is not paying attention. You know, the world's in an absolute mess. We need to heal it. We need to remediate it. And so the big trend now is regenerative agriculture. And I actually had a chapter on regenerative agriculture in my first book, which, like I said, I started writing in 1996 when virtually nobody had ever heard of it outside of the Rodale Institute where they're doing the research on it. So the restoration economy might have been the first book to ever have a, an actual chapter on regenerative agriculture. And now 
in the last five, six, seven years or so, uh, it's absolutely exploded. And it exploded as a result of research that was revealed at an event I went to here in Washington, D.C. by a European organization uh, called Regeneration International. And it was the first time it was revealed over at the National Press Club that regenerative agriculture sequestered carbon at a rate that was four times greater than reforestation. And all of a sudden, the traditional benefits of regenerative agriculture, which is restoring native pollinators, restoring local ecosystems, restoring watersheds, rebuilding topsoil, all of a sudden, the whole idea of restoring the climate was added to the regenerative agriculture agenda. And that's when it really took off. This seems like something that uh, big industry is involved in and that it's not contrary to economic development. And I know you mentioned something about General Mills. I don't know if this is specifically what they're doing, but they are doing something in this realm, perhaps. Oh, yeah. Uh, All the big ones, uh, Cargill, General Mills, Nestle, all these huge agribusiness conglomerates are uh, jumping into regenerative agriculture with both feet. You know, Cargill just announced a 10 million acre initiative. Uh, Another one has got like a $10 billion initiative. It's very positive, but as usual, what happens when you get the huge corporations involved is that part of it tends to be eyewash, you know, just good publicity, and part of it tends to be watered down concepts. So you'll often find some of these uh, regenerative agriculture initiatives that have just basically been stripped down to no-till, and that's it. And no-till is obviously a, a very uh, valuable part of the whole regenerative agriculture technique. It's not the only part of it. And by grossly simplifying it, in many ways undermining the regenerative agriculture movement, which is at a critical point right now, uh, where it needs more support, it needs more research. And now people who really do are concerned about the environment are seeing some of these uh, superficial attempts And, you know, these are people who don't know anything about regenerative agriculture. And they take a look at that and say, well, there's nothing to that. That's just a a minor modification on industrial agriculture. So they they lose hope. You know, they, they get a negative first impression of regenerative agriculture because their first exposure to it is one of these uh, watered down corporate initiatives. Right. And so it puts them on the defensive or they just are not open to it. I was actually going to ask you about corporations and their interests here, because a lot of time I think people hear about how a giant corporation is polluting the environment and then they do get caught and they get brought to court and then if they do even end up getting punished or it's like not tied up in the courts the punishment is often so small that it actually still makes it worthwhile for them to continue polluting is that still ongoing concern should we be thinking about that too primary purpose of government is to keep the wealthy wealthy and the powerful powerful (laughs) you know so it's always going to be manipulated in such a way that uh, any fines for uh, misbehavior on the corporate part are basically going to be small enough that they can just be considered a cost of doing business. Right. Yeah. It's just uh, one of the line items they have to pay off to continue operating. So I guess another question is you're, you're talking about like three things you mentioned were uh, repurpose, renew and reconnect. So that to me sounds like there would be, like you said, the waterfronts used to have industry there and perhaps when they moved out, they're trying to reuse the property or whatever. But suppose that there are still active pollutants in that kind of setting. What can a municipality do in that situation? Like, how should they tackle that? When I first started writing the restoration economy in 1996, the EPA's Brownfields program was one year old and organized uh, 
industry and scientific disciplines uh, around brownfields is actually quite new. People have been cleaning up brownfields for longer than that, but it was only in 1995 here in the U.S. that it became formalized and funded, and the EPA started uh, handing out grants to communities so they could assess their brownfields, find out which properties are likely to be contaminated, and then actually start testing them, find out which ones really are contaminated. Because a brownfield isn't necessarily contaminated. It's a property that's either contaminated or perceived to be contaminated. And the problem is that nobody's going to buy it and redevelop it in either either case that might be contaminated. They don't want to end up being liable for the cleanup uh, if they're not the ones who contaminated it. So uh, over the last few decades, uh, you know, it's turned into a huge industry, and uh, there are you know, absolutely vast cleanup projects going on. I mean, there was one, I believe, the Jacobs Engineering Company recently won a, what was it, 12? I forget the size of it now. It was huge, somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 billion, wow. a single government contract to clean up an old uh, nuclear research facility. It was just uh, heavily contaminated by radiation. So it's, it's really big business. How you go about doing it, you know, there are so many, there are over 10,000 man made contaminants on the planet. And, uh, you know, many of them require very different ways of contaminating them. And then the way you go about doing it is going to be determined not just by chemistry, but also by the realities of your situation. How much money do you have to work with now? Are you going to have to do this slowly over a long period of time? Or do you have the money to dive right in and do it quickly so you can redevelop the property right away? Time and money are fungible. So if you don't have the money, uh, then you have to replace that money with time, in which case you can do things like in situ, you know, meaning you're not going to ex situ is the fast way of doing it. In the bad old days, the ex situ remediation, I put quotes around that word remediation, meant basically coming in with bulldozers and dump trucks, hauling out the contaminated land, and here in the States, usually dumping it on Native American reservations. That went on for well over a decade. And then they they got caught doing that and decided that maybe what they needed to do was clean it up. So instead of dumping it on Native American land, they started taking it to facilities where the soil would be decontaminated, usually with a, a way that destroyed the climate because they used uh, they basically heated up the soil to a point where it destroyed the contaminants, which required vast amounts of, of energy. The more ecologically sound way of doing it, if you have the time, is, as you mentioned earlier, you said mushrooms. There's uh, phytoremediation where you can use plants to uh, take up the contaminants, and there are different kinds of plants take up different kinds of heavy metals and other contaminants. And uh, then you can harvest those plants, turn them into biofuel or extract the contaminants from them. Or you can use uh, you know, mycoremediation, which is fungi, uh, which is really good at breaking down petrochemical pollution. I know Phil popped in and out there. I didn't know if, if you had anything to add to this particular topic. I missed a chunk in the middle there because I dropped, but I, I see we're coming near the end there. I guess, Steve, I'll, I'll let you Ask the last question if you have any. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering, because all of this is kind of governance level, municipal, community type political things. Uh, and I'm wondering if the average person hears this and, and really it resonates with them and they are really buying into this is what we need and they're passionate, but they feel like, okay, what can I actually do? What would you recommend for the average person listening? Uh, it depends who they are. If they're a neighborhood volunteer, you know, there's, there's one approach. Uh, if they're already in city government, there's another. But 
There is one approach that really is appropriate, no matter whether they're a mayor, a neighborhood activist, a planner, an architect, uh, or whatever. And that's if they want to increase the likelihood that their local revitalization efforts will be a, a success, they need to plug in that missing process. And uh, the easiest way to do that is to get certified as a revitalization and resilience facilitator by the organization I run, Reconomics Institute, at Reconomics.org. And, uh, you know, the uh, tuition for it's only $299. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, if your listeners are interested in doing that, when you enroll, you can use the coupon code CRISIS, just the word CRISIS. It's a coupon I came up with at the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, and uh, that'll save them $100 on their tuition. So they can get certified as a revitalization resilience facilitator, which means they can be the person who's at the table who understands how to put together a complete process that'll help all of those other talented professionals out there and all those wonderful projects coalesce into successful revitalization. Very nice. It's a pleasure having you here, and we really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for coming on. So can you repeat your website there and, or anywhere else that they would want to reach you? Yeah, Reconomics Institute is reconomics.org. If you go to stormcunningham.com, which is my public speaking site, you can basically find links to everything I do there. My books, organizations, uh, Revitalization, which is at revitalization.org, which is put out twice a month and has over 8,500 articles uh, from past issues in it. So anything you want to find out about, any stories you want to read about of revitalization, resilience, redevelopment, remediation, ecological restoration, those stories are all there at revitalization.org. And maybe we we can even include a link to your TED Talk, which was uh, something that we both really enjoyed and, and thoroughly because the images there, just just seeing the the images of some of the, the streams that you've shown before and after a revitalization project in Chattanooga and all the rest of it. I mean, just have that visual component. Again, your humor, it's, it's something worth uh, checking out. So we'll link that as well. Oh, glad you liked it. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for joining us and uh, we'll be sure to let you know when this airs. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Steve and Phil. Appreciate being on your show. Thanks for coming on. You do this all the time, you liar. You liar. You did some decent some decent co-hosting there. I'm a worthy co-host who can ask smart questions. Yeah.